Now this is a Dunkin' Run. A $3 sausage, egg, and cheese with a medium or larger coffee. I'm going on a Dunkin' Run. You want anything? Oh, a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant and a hot coffee. You got it. Wait, oh, oh, actually, a sausage, egg, and cheese and an iced coffee. Time for a Dunkin' Run. Add a $3 sausage, egg, and cheese to a medium or larger coffee. America runs on Dunkin'. Offer valid with the purchase of a medium or larger coffee. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. It's Jeep 4x4 season. Make your next adventure epic and hurry in now for great deals. And now, well-qualified lessees get a low-mileage lease on the 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe for $389 a month for 24 months with $5,399 due at signing. Tax title license extra. No security deposit required. Call 1-888-925-JEEP for details. Requires dealer contribution, a lease to Chrysler Capital. Extra charge for miles over 20000 Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 531-23. Jeep is a registered trademark. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest installation of uh, the Living Process episodes today. I am fantastically glad to be speaking yet again with uh, Jeff Lippman. Hello, everyone. All right, so this is this is simulcast on his. It's here on the Living Process YouTube channel, announced uh, through my Twitter at Histovarch, H-I-S-T-O-F-A-R-C-H. And uh, Jeff, you can certainly tell everyone who's come across this where they should find you and uh, and your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully, if you're watching this or hearing this, you've already listened to the prior episode. Uh, my podcast was called Garden of Doom, and David was on that. And it was, I think we called it a swap cast or some clever term that I believe we invented. Um, and I called the show debunking the stone because that was basically, uh, the larger, largest topic anyway, though we certainly strayed in many directions about sort of talking about the ancient architects, archaeology kind of, uh, beliefs that are out there and trying to hit upon some of those. And, uh, you know, David did a masterful job of doing so. And he was kind enough to invite me back on. And then we're doing this sort of swap cast thing again. So, but this time David's going to lead. So I'm happy to be led. Yeah, glad to have you here. So this, yeah, this is definitely a part two. I think in our respective feeds, you'll find the part one. And this is following up on something that we had just touched on and wanted to address more in detail. And that was the idea of religions change over time and how we regard the things that are eternal and unchanging and us as humans have parts that change and part that don't parts that don't and the real spark for it was the idea of a temple 
a sacred space for a religion that does not yet exist and about what that would look like, what, what that would seem like. And that sparked what I thought was a fantastic kind of thought thread from you, which I'm curious about. We should probably just start off with with our own beliefs, and then other people can be thinking about what they believe, say what they believe on comments and all of, all of that. Um, and you mentioned, I'll let you pick. You can, either I can go first or you can go first. But um, like a coin toss in front of a football game, who knows? But right. you mentioned something earlier about your what did you you had a very interesting name for it? A dualistic animist. A dualistic animist, yes. Which I thought, um, which I thought was an interesting thing. So now I should I immediately understood that because those are very clear uh, philosophical terms for people who might not be familiar with that the way that I and you can correct me uh, the way that I understood that is a an animist believing that the world is suffused with spirit and that you can find a, a spiritual connection in given things around you okay and I suppose the scope of that in Japan and also in medieval Europe they found rocks uh, to have sp spiritual nature in them, specifically shaped rocks in the in the West, the, the Gothic cathedrals and uh, druids with druids, they focused on trees, but they would think that lots of things were like this. It doesn't necessarily, one could be a perfectly, I think one could be a perfectly good monotheist. Well, I suppose that you would call it a pantheist. Here we're getting very doctrinaire immediately, but and then dualist Dualist would be, that could mean any number of different things. There's mind-body dualism. Typically, when you're speaking of spiritual things, that usually means um, uh, Manichaeanism of some type or another, like Zoroastrianism, where there's positive energy and there's negative energy. And is that how you meant it? Zoroastrianism is probably extremely close, um, at least okay. for the duality. I think for me to go further, I probably need to step back first a little bit. And I also want to preface this by, this is not judgment. This is not firm. I haven't set upon any definitions. But when I started this journey, if you asked me what I was, I probably would have said I'm an atheist. Um, but are any of us really? I mean, when we're when we're in our deepest, darkest times and we start talking to ourselves, are we really talking to ourselves or do we hope that we're talking to something else? And so, you know, for, for you know, in everyone's life, rain falls. And I had mine about 10 years ago and, and there were, you know, two very difficult years. Um, and, you know, my own atheism was challenged by myself uh, and at some point I had said, all right, enough of this and, you know, get up, uh, get up with the business of living. So I did. And I, you know, built the life and I started, you know, not really looking into a spiritual journey. I mean, the, the origins of Garden of Doom really weren't about that necessarily. It was just about curiosity. But the more I learned, the more I saw things were similar and, uh, to cut to the short, because we are on a time schedule, it just seems that everything starts with some duality, whether it's man and woman, order and chaos, good and evil. Uh, I think that there are importances, you know, that, that have flowed from those things unintentionally. I think the difference between man and woman has, has led to a lot of unfortunate circumstances, but it, I think that they just stood in as archetypes or, you know, what they call anthropomorph anthropomorphizations of concepts uh, probably more order and chaos, which is really just, you know, good and evil without intention. Um, so I, let's go with order and chaos. So the old Babylon 5, the Vorlons versus the uh, the shadows kind of thing. Um, but without intent, that's just sort of the way of things. And that everything is spirit. Now, that's not to say that I think that every rock has a spirit, but I don't necessarily think it doesn't either. I mean, we're all made of stardust and it's been proven time and time again that, you know, that, that the, the stuff of life is found in rocks and dirt and worms and ice and what, whatever you want to say. So, you know, the, the, you know, I'm, I, I don't, you know, I don't get too much into the woo woo of rocks and blades of grass. I mean, I think that an eagle has more spirit than say a blade of grass, but you know, everything's connected. Thank you. Everything's connected. Now, what do I do with this? I don't know. I, I you know, 
in some way, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure, but since we're not trying to solve the world's issues here today, that's, that's probably how I would frame it. Um, from there, what do you do? I guess you just try to do the golden rule. You know, you just, uh, you know, try to treat everyone with respect and, 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 you know, maybe a bit of the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not preaching that everyone needs to be a hero. I'm not, I'm not even sure that's appropriate. Well, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, how often in, this is another tangent, but just real briefly, how often in schools do they talk about the ideals of leadership? And that's very important. Yet you also want people to be in leadership roles who are suited to it and who want to do it. I think everyone has had the experience of having a manager who doesn't want to be a manager. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not fun for anybody. And, but how often, I don't think often enough, maybe sometimes I was lucky enough to have this is that how often will they have like a, a, a collaboration or teamwork classes? Cause that's, that's utterly, utterly needed. If you have, if you have a bunch of people who are all wanting to be leaders, what you have is competitive chaos. And so it's very, very important for people to be good team members. And I think you have a lot of that naturally. And then ideally you want it to be suited together. But, but anyways, to the, out to the main points, I think that's very, what you say about, um, this kind of animism, I think is important. The way I describe my own feelings about it is a kind of pantheism. Um, I am, I am ultimately a non-dualist. I'm ultimately a monist. So monism versus dualism. I believe that there is a unity to everything with my metaphysics for those keeping score at home <laughs> uh, to look things up. My metaphysics hew extremely closely and I've been in my study inspired by the work of Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, L-E-I-B-N-I-T-Z. Uh, some people say Leibniz, but uh, it's, it's, it's German, and in German it's really easy to figure out because if you're pronouncing it the German way, and in the United States they, you know, they berg the berg and all those things. But in German, the way that you, if you're doing pronouncing it the German, the European way, the last letter is what you say. Ah, uh, so is is I. It was is he Sir Isaac Newton's uh, arch nemesis best friend, like the original frenemies? Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really fun bit of history. He was absolutely Isaac Newton's frenemy. Mm. They were rivals on several counts because Isaac Newton uh, got really, really upset at Leibniz for stealing his thunder on calculus. Calculus, right. Newton was such Newton was such an on the spectrum genius. I, I really think so that he, yeah. he would do all these things and he's like, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm just going to put this in a drawer. And he literally did that. He, he figured out calculus and then he put it in a drawer because I don't know, he was working on alchemy and like the laws of gravity and stuff. So, you know, yeah. he was busy. <laughs> he, he also tested Quicksilver Mercury on himself for most of his life, which did not help his madness any. Correct. That would not that yeah. would not help his emotional stability. But he, he lived to be eighty four. He lived to be like eighty four or eighty eight, something like that. He lived for a long time. Yeah. But he he was totally, totally arguing with Leibniz. <laughs> Um, I think he lived a bit longer than Leibniz. Leibniz died in 1716, something like that. Towards the end of his life, he wrote this amazing thing called the Monadology, which was a summary, like uh, a 15-ish page in, I think, in paper, uh, in handwritten summary to a friend of his about who wanted to understand what he thought. He, He wrote a big book called Theodicy which is about the problem, like, why are there bad things in the world? Right. Really long, really dry. It itself was a response to John Locke. At the end of it, there's a tremendously amazing parable called the parable of Sextus Tarquinius, which I swear the architect scene and the second part of the Matrix was based on. <laughs> the whole thing where they're zooming into the different TV screens. Mm-hmm. Like, each, each time that happens with Neo... That's a branching path in parallel worlds. Like, a decision has made, and you go into that alternate universe right that's what they're showing visually it's i i love that that that's the best scene i think out of the whole the whole three movies because of that point and my my jaw hit the floor when i was reading leibniz is like it's from the matrix it's it's quite possible that the uh the wachowski uh people were uh you know we're thinking about all that i would say it's likely though though i will say i think that there's only one matrix movie and then there's now four sequels all of the john wick movies are sequels to the matrix all the other matrix movies are are garbage john yeah john john wick Wick is neo sleeping those are his those are his dreams powering the the matrix Ah. battery 
So, so Leibniz, uh, Leibniz believed Leibniz's stuff was influenced very, very strongly by uh, by Huygens, who was a Dutch physicist, and also by Baruch Spinoza, who was a Dutch. Uh, lens grinder is how he made his money he made lenses for telescopes and glasses but because it was the age of enlightenment he was also totally famous for other stuff and he was branded as a heretic uh because he was kind of kicked out of his religious community for being a pantheist for trying to say that god is absolutely everywhere and he was saying it so loudly that the religious officials got really annoyed with him and said no, stop it. Stop being annoying with your heterodox religious belief. So that was kind of sad for him, but he was, I think it was interesting. He might not be considered a heretic today. And because it was the Netherlands, he had, you know, they could stop him from hanging out, but he had religious freedom because it was the Netherlands. Um, thank goodness. Famously so nice he, people. Uh, September 3rd. Little baby present. It's only us. Today. Made it out the trenches this time of At life, CFG Bank Arena, get ready for an epic summer. Low Baby's IOU Tour has finally touched down. It's Low Baby live in concert featuring the King Lobrilla, Rilo Rodriguez, and Honcho. Tickets are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com. Brought to you by Mammoth Live and AG Touring. What? Famously nice people. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so Baruch Spinoza influenced uh, Leibniz tremendously, uh, and uh, Leibniz. Tie, this ties into the architecture. Leibniz. I actually discussed Leibniz with Christopher Alexander. He ended up. Um, I was very flattered that he he had read and considered some of the stuff that that I had written. We went over it, and he started his books on the nature of order, big four volume thing. He started that with, in order to do architecture better after industrial problems, we need to change how we see the world, getting out of a mechanistic mindset and into something different. And what you were saying about seeing life everywhere, that's what he starts with. He starts with changing how you see life. And Leib this is also how Leibniz saw it, that everything is full of a sense that life, it doesn't make much sense to stop the definition of life at biology. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy, Denis Diderot, who did the encyclopedia, also from that same time period of the Enlightenment. Denis Diderot wrote something called D'Alembert's Dream, a dialogue, and imagine like a Socratic-style dialogue, he was influenced by, by Plato. Um, and in it, he has two people discussing and arguing about how do you define life. And he revealed through this that it actually creates some logical absurdities to say that life stops at the threshold of biology. Now, it makes a lot of sense to say, yeah, biology is a thing that exists. There's stuff mm -hmm. that's non-biological, there's stuff that is biological, right? Because of metabolism. Right. Um, and I can't remember exactly the argument that he posits, but it makes a lot of sense. Christopher Alexander takes this further and says, aha, if we think, if we go around the world thinking like Rene Descartes did, that we have every, this is Cartesian dualism, the mind-body split, which neuroscience is blown out of the water, by the way the mind-body split that there's the race cogitans, the world inside us, and the race extensa, the world outside us, mm -hmm. and inside of us. If you're an atheist, you think that it's only your consciousness. If you're a theist, like Descartes was, you think that it's, it's God and your soul. Everything outside is just a mechanical creation, that the watchmaker wound it up and it just goes. Now, there, you're going to treat the world very differently if you think that the only thing that has spirit or reason, or anything alive is in you. And I think that we can see how the world is treated as, uh, when it's treated like a mechanism, there are some negative things that can happen. Descartes would have been horrified by some of the implications of this. He didn't mean this. He meant this as a heuristic, as a way of seeing the world to make decisions. He didn't think the world was ultimately like this. He was actually an, what you call an occasionalist. Leibniz criticized him for this in the monadology because what, what Descartes actually believed is you have to imagine God's totally infinite fingers everywhere. Right. And the way stuff happened in nature, that was always God shoving stuff around. That's what Descartes actually believed. So he believed that God was everywhere right. in this kind of weird way. Uh, Leibniz said that's weird and ridiculous to think of it like that and makes no sense <laughs> um what did the church say to that i mean i would think that they would agree with descartes, descartes? yeah 
Yeah, they, they, they thought it was weird. The church thought it was weird. Uh, I forget exactly what the Catholic Church um, said. They didn't like, well, he was another heretic, in a sense. Uh, Descartes didn't end up getting work in France. He ended up working for the King of Sweden. Uh, and the King of Sweden was super insistent that he have his philosophy lessons before sunrise or something like that. And so Descartes ended up getting pneumonia and dying because he had to wake up and do his philosophy lessons and prepare for the lessons before the king, and he got sick. In Sweden, no less. In Sweden. Right. <laughs> it was, but the, uh, so yeah, so my, my own belief in this is, is very close to Leibniz. Uh, and I think that the monadology, and I've done a fair amount of work on this, I believe that the monadology holds away, because this happens around, this happens sometimes in history. Uh, he was, what, he was close to 350 years before us? If you think about how all the revolutions, and it's not just Christianity, but it was Christianity around, you know, in the first century AD, but there were all kinds of other. Christianity was one facet of a really dynamic religious time. Right. A lot of a lot of stuff that was going on there was that the, the Platonism from, you know, from 350, from 400 years ago, people were looking at what Socrates and Plato were talking about and the priests and they were like, Oh, wait a minute, huh? This the stuff about eternal forms, the stuff about the heavens, not changing and things changing down here. How is that connecting? What does that mean for us? What, what is the nature of the soul? What is the nature of love? And that influenced totally lots of different religions. Um, and you can even see it. You, I, I, I'm pretty sure I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think you can see it in Philo of Alexandria. There's Neoplatonist stuff influencing him because it was because it was general philosophy. Plato didn't start a religion. Not really. Right. And so and so his philosophy influenced people who were religious. So you had Philo, uh, Philo of Alexandria and the Jewish community being influenced. It. Uh, some decades after him, you had early Christians being influenced by it. The Stoics in Rome were totally definitely influenced by the Platonists. And so I, I think it's making sense in a certain way that the ideas of Leibniz right now are echoing types of things that people that people are thinking. And I think that it could be useful, not like I'm going to say, like, we need to use Leibniz to change the world. I wouldn't advocate for that necessarily. But I think that it just makes sense for what people are wrestling with right now. If you look into what Leibniz was saying, and it's a little bit weird, but as far as philosophy goes, it's actually kind of clear because he was writing it quickly and he was writing it to be clearly understood. It's weird and it's different. The first thing you have to get over is that he talks about elements and atoms. Right. He doesn't mean atoms in the way that we think of them. He doesn't mean atoms of matter. He means atoms of form. What's the difference? So an atom of matter would be a little particle like an atom that we think of. Sure. An atom of an irreducible physical thing. He's thinking of an irreducible metaphysical thing. A cube is a good example. Mm -hmm. So a cube cannot be reduced and still be that same cube. There is the form of that specific cube, which it is, which is, that's, that's it. It's an element of form. And he calls that a monad, a, a unity. That's what monad means. It means a unity. And so, and then there are, mo there are unities inside unities. And this is the idea of recursion, which, which didn't hit popular consciousness until the Mandelbrot set, <laughs> you know, until people could see recursion. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a miracle of the of the early computer graphics, right? Uh, but Leibniz, Leibniz was way ahead of that on many things. You know, he invented binary math, all the concepts that Babbage and uh, the lady, uh, Lady Loveless, uh, Lord Byron's daughter, she was really the first computer coder. She didn't have a computer, but she wrote code. She <laughs> she, she wrote a chess program, I think, or something like it. Um, but they didn't. It was all theoretical. Uh, Leibniz designed a theoretical adding machine. He designed a computer that worked on binary. Right. Um, and he was admitted to the Royal Society in London, making Newton totally jealous <laughs> um, on, the, on the fact that he presented this design to them, which, which nobody ever built because it was totally expensive. Uh, but then eventually, after the Industrial Revolution, you know, we can all follow the, the, the stuff about that. But I think that religion... 
Religion is evolving, and what about my beliefs? Well, let's see. I've been going on a big, a big journey about that uh, because on my with my family history, which I think gets into it. Um, on my mom's side, it's 100% English. On my mom's side, with roughly 12%, I think, DNA of Iberian Spanish, which no one knows where that came from or how. It probably happened in England. And then they, they came to the United States in the 1630. Uh, and then my dad's side of the family, the Getson side of it, as far as we know, we can trace back to the 1650s, maybe, is when they first hit the historical record. Uh, and they were from, as far as we can tell, Mecklenburg and then other places before them. Right. Which we don't know what it is, but we can guess. And so then, and then my dad has some Middle Eastern DNA. When you're from Northeastern Germany and you have Middle Eastern DNA, one can infer then when you are, when you have generations of Lutherans, in Germany with some Middle Eastern DNA that there was a conversion at one point from Judaism into uh, into Christianity. Of okay. course. So that's that's something in uh, that that had been in my mind for, for, for a very long time and even just kind of culturally familially it was just kind of in the air as something people were vaguely aware of. And honestly, you talk to any Germans at all, it's something all Germans are vaguely aware of. To, to, I mean, the point that there were uh, the first Jewish community in Germany was there before Charlemagne. It was, they, they came there with the Romans, you know? Right. So it was, it's all, all together in there. So I have been thinking about my faith and I've been thinking about the historical Jesus and what do I believe. And I have felt like uh, God has been calling me to, to live a life in harmony with Judaism. And so I've been annoying rabbis about this and <laughs> when they've been mostly very nice. And, and I'm grateful for that. And so I, and I felt that that's a nice thing for my life. Um, and so if, so if anyone asks me, you know, if he was, well, okay, well, so, well, what is your religion? What are, it, it's, I, I don't have an easy answer. If someone asks me, are you Jewish? I can say, well, uh, sort of. short answer, yes. Right. Short answer, yes. Accurate answer takes at least three minutes. Right. Well, it's your <laughs> it's show. You have three minutes. <laughs> huh? It's your show, so you have three minutes. Oh, sure. I suppose. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, and it's not exactly, it's, it's not exactly something that everyone wants to hear, but I know that this is this is the context where some people might. So, but it's but it's but I appreciate going over it. And um, well, they have to hear so the the end. The Go ahead. I mean, you give us such a beautiful historic and philosophical uh, portrait. Uh, you know, all these all these broad strokes and brought them all together. That that we have to sort of find out what the end in is, at least with regards to the main character here, which is you. Oh well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So to bring it, yeah, to bring it to to a point. That's um, yeah. And so I think, and then there's and then there's the question of me fitting into the larger situation of, of life and community and everything, because that's that's also important. I feel like I feel like God is is calling me, and I, sometimes I feel like God is shouting, you know, like like telling me to pay attention to something in, in the various ways that you think inspirations or reminders happen from the universe, uh, and. Um, connecting to community in in a, in a way is important, especially because things things shift and change. Something else that I say from time to time is, and I think I said this this little joke of mine last time, is that I would expect that if I'm lucky enough to have grandchildren, that they will understand my own religion better than I do. Hopefully, and I, and I think that. That just that that we're going through I, now. All times are a time of transition, but I really do think we're going through a time of transition in which religions are going through these shifts in a pretty fundamental way. That's usually a roughly a thousand year at a time thing. Yeah, that seems to be about right. And I'd be curious your perceptions on this. I mean, with with mine, I think it's definitely happening. Um, 
I don't want it to touch the nerve of politics, but I do think that the foundation of Israel and the fact that it exists as a place like that calls into question for both, for all three Abrahamic faiths. It's just a fact that that political shift invites all three Abrahamic faiths to pause for a moment and say, huh, are we thinking about anything a little bit differently, at least right now? It, it, that makes it, a difference. It literally you know, grounded things. Go ahead. It, it literally grounded things in the actual ground. <laughs> you know, it's a, well, sure. Israel went yeah. from concept to actual uh, a place. I don't know if, uh, you know, the, you never know what the linchpins are, but I think that these things are inevitable anyway. And I think that with so many religions and so many philosophies, even Christianity, even though Catholic went from lowercase c to capital C, it really never was universal. I mean, from day one, that that's that, that that that's a fallacy. Um, and and with you know, uh, people can read Yuval Harari. I I, I recommend it. He, he's sort of an optimist, and, and you know, basically looking at trends and numbers. Um, yeah, so you can see, uh, you, but I, I still think when you live in your times, you know, the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I think everyone always feels like they're living in interesting times and there's more people and there's more places and there's more connectivity. So while statistically there may be less war and conflict historically and less famine and things like that, it doesn't feel like it because th there's almost nothing that we're not exposed to. I mean, I saw today that 30 people died in a barbecue explosion somewhere in China. I mean, the whole world's been watching these these five people, you know, not get rescued in a submersible, you know, uh, and and there's, you know, there's stories everywhere from every corner of the world. So we, I think we all feel it hitting us. And, and I think people feel like maybe their religion doesn't answer that for them. I mean, a lot of times the, the religions sort of were a way of explaining things, maybe getting people on, on certain life cycles with agreed upon societal norms sort of to build a social contract. Then it got a little bit bigger. Then you had the gods who were sort of intermingling with people so that we were sort of divine and spiritual. But if, if the gods wanted to, they could sort of flick us away. You know, Zeus could procreate with, with a woman, but he could also do whatever else he wanted as well. Um, and then you sort of got the uh, Abraham, a God who, well, let's face it, the Old Testament, the, the God of the Old Testament is kind of a, not that nice a guy all the time. I mean, so, so, sort of a, sort of a jerk. And then I think Christian, so I think we started with gods high above to explain. Then, you know, you sort of have a lot of, like almost every culture has some sort of divinity coming down and procreating with, with, with humans. So then you're bringing gods back to man. We're, we're back to divine. We're closer to God. We're like this close. The earth is our playground. Um, and then sort of, I think Judaism sort of stopped that and sort of said, no, no, God's all the way up here. And, and we're down here. Don't, don't build your towers of Babel. Don't, don't, tr don't try to challenge me. I'll send floods and stuff like that. And I think Christianity by having Jesus and the, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. I think it was bringing God closer to man again, and, and almost, you know, communion, like constant communion, one and the same. However, but what that did is that introduced free will. Everything is God's plan except humans. It's free will because the world is still your playground. And that hasn't worked out so well for the world. And maybe even humans don't feel like it's working out so well for them. So then you look to the back, you know, the past, and we all look back at the past pastorally. You know, we all think that the, you know, the the indigenous peoples lived in more balance with their surroundings and, you know, forget that they they had wars and, you know, and, you know, you know four to five kids died before they were four and 50% of the women died in childbirth and stuff like that. But, but the spiral... There were Oh, sorry, they, there were less of them to harm the environment to begin with. And if they sure. harmed the environment too much, they would all die. Right. And, and until so it was, yeah. And until, I don't know, 100,000 years ago, maybe maybe sooner, you know, basically humans were no further ahead than wolves on the on the predator, you know, apex predator list. That's a good point. Anyway, I think that the people, you know, e even if 
health and, and well-being wasn't the same lifespan, that they, they still think that there was a spiritualness, you know, the magic of ayahuasca, the statistical improbability and possibility that it was developed, things like that. And so I, so I think people look for other things, but the reality of technology doesn't allow us to be too woo. And so we have to build a new kind of paradigm, which takes into science and human knowledge and what we know about the universe with some sort of spirituality and, and almost create a new hybrid doctrine. Yeah. And I think, I think what's really interesting, I agree with that. And I think what's one of the things that's very interesting about that is yours. Okay. There are several things. One of the things that you were talking about that I think is important to, to, to acknowledge and to frame is you were, you were showing in excellent detail what, what one could describe as a dialectic, a pendulum dialectic between imminence and transcendence. So you would have the you would have the transcendent conception of the divine, of the uh, of the grand creator of El Elyon, um, and the and the present the great presence of the Lord, and then you how you swing way back down into the imminence of the Pauline of the Johannine Christianity of the idea of the kenosis of the spirit being poured out and into flesh, huge big contrast, and then. Only a few hundred years after that, Islam goes way the heck the other way and says, oh, we're being absolute, we're being so transcendent, our art is going to be abstract, right? So, yeah, you definitely have that happening. Um, and then you were talking about, oh, what point did we, uh, did, did, did we finish on? Because you finished on something really important. Uh, blending sort of science, technology, and knowledge with sort uh, of yes. a... Thank you. Yes, mm -hmm. that, that science... Um, and it's important to remember that it seems like science and te science, technology, and religion can fight. But usually, what's happening is that because if science, that when I should say when science and technology change the way we see the world, that means that the religion has to speak to the changed mindset. Uh, and it doesn't it doesn't wipe out religion. It just kind of in invites or compels religion to to grow or change and then there's th this has been happening it happened even in the so-called scientific revolution someone like galileo galileo and newton and descartes all the people that the the atheist humanists today would would say are their heroes which is fine they can have they're excellent heroes for anybody mostly um and they were all ardent believers in god some of them were non-denominational so to speak they didn't believe some of them didn't belong exactly or fit in one religion um galileo uh was famously said that he believed that geometry was the language that geometry was how god expressed he he he, he saw divine magic in the elegance of geometry yeah. many mathematicians many scientists say this and there was a uh there was a big movement, and then there, this, this raises the question of intellectualizing and academicizing religion, which I think is that has important things to understand how things work, to understand the history of it, and how people discuss it. It's it's not nonsense, usually, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, but in, in the night, starting in the 1940s and 50s, uh, there was a very strong strain in Catholicism that came out through people like uh, Teilhard de Chardin. Uh, and other people, uh, there were, and it was mostly, I think, in the Jesuits who were always very intellectually engaged. And they were, um, for, for example, the Catholic Church embraced the Big Bang theory quite, quite early on, because, because, and they kind of took the attitude of, aha, science, you have, <laughs> you've proved <laughs> you the word back around to the way that we saw it. <laughs> right. Let there be life. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. they're not distinguishable. It's just who caused it, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's right. almost, it's almost immaterial at that point. Before I, 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 I want to get this thought out before I lose it. And, I, and at my age, sometimes sure, you risk things. But I think one of the reasons why so many conspiracy theorists are somehow tied to a deep religious uh, religious beliefs is that when you have when you believe that everything is controlled by some arm of man, be it a cabal or or even be it whether it's the devil, it doesn't matter. Something earthbound, something within our firmament. 
it still keeps the bubble of we are we are God's special creatures. This is God's, you know, that the, it allows for God to still live in the space. So, so when you start believing in UFOs or see life outside, or if you start just saying, wow, not everything is controlled. There's a whole lot of chaos out there or there's balance, but we always can't control it or whatever. Then all of a sudden you sort of lose your grip on your reality. I think that the, the, the temptation, the, the conspiracy is that someone's controlling it and, and that someone is earthbound. Now they may be directed by nefarious, you know, anti-divinity forces, but whatever it is, it's still part of our special encapsulated snow globe universe, which allows very comfortably God to exist. Um, and that's why some conspiracies are held so deeply and so, uh, so closely tied to uh, devout or what people call fringe religious groups, but I would not call, you know, some of the most devout religious people in the world necessarily fringe. I think that's too convenient and it's too dismissive. Yeah. And I, no, I think that's, I think that, yeah, that's an excellent point that, and especially with what you said about when, when, when transcendence, when the transcendence of the divine is not fully acknowledged, it really opens up a can of worms of uh, fear, because then there is always the risk of someone believing that, that they would believe that what is ultimately in control has to be by definition imperfect. Right. So it, it, it ramps up the stakes in a sense, and it ramps up the paranoia for control because you would want either to be in control yourself, which is impossible at that level, or you would want to try to influence yourself to make something in control like that. And that just leads to spiraling down, I think, to, to darker stuff. And we've, we've seen how that plays out in, in history. Mm -hmm. um, there has not been, um, th there has not been a very good track record of people who try to suppress religious belief being in charge of stuff. Right. So <laughs> the, uh, but now with everything that has, um, that has transpired with stuff changing, um, with the, I, I ground a lot of my historiography in Oswald Spengler. Um, and are, are, are you familiar with Spengler? I have heard the name, but I confess nay. For, for your own benefit and for people listening who uh, some people might be sick of me talking about Spengler, um, usually the people who like Spengler never get sick of talking about him. He's a historian and a philosopher of history who was a German who wrote most of his stuff before and during the First World War. And then he died in like 35 or 36-ish, I think. Mm -hmm. So he, li he lived long enough to hope that something positive would happen in Germany and then looked at the Nazis and said, oh no, these people right. are idiots. <laughs> That's why he was a German conservative who felt like that. Right. Um, and then he observed that history happens in cycles, which I think all of us perceive on some level. There are small cycles and big cycles. And he said, well, is there a grand, is, is there a certain scope that we can set to these cycles and really think about how civilizations rise and fall in a good way that makes sense, that we can apply more generally? He came up with a whole theory about all of that stuff. Um, and without getting into it too much, he, he basically split it into two of a rise and a, uh, a gathering of energy and a dispersal of energy, culture on the early part, civilization on the second part. And he, he believed that the, the type of civilization that we're in now, which he called the Faustian world system, which also referred to as the West generally, that it began in Northern and Western Europe about the time that the cathedrals were being built and the crusades were being fought. That, that Western stuff as we know it started then. He thought that the Greek stuff as we know it started in the centuries after the Bronze Age collapse. And so Greece at, uh, at Socrates was kind of like a peak. And Rome was the hardening and fossilization into civilization as it kind of dispersed and declined. Right. Our peak, analogously, would be with Descartes and Leibniz and those guys, not coincidentally that we're talking about. They, they were the apotheosis of the fulfillments of the intellectual spirit of the West. And now we're going into the fossilization. And it's either going to be collapse of some things or it's going to be kind of a hardening and a stiffening of things. And maybe 
there is a disruptive new energy coming up, we don't know. Uh, and he always talked about how at the end of those phases, there's something he called the second religiousness. And we, the kind of stuff you were describing really echoes that, that you were talking about how the, um, the people are looking for other stuff. And I think that's very true because as the civilization, as the culture has changed, the, the stuff that was tuned when the culture was newer is no longer fitting the changed world as well. And so people are saying, well, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't answering the stuff that I'm feeling now. It answers some stuff, but not the other stuff. And conservative people tend to look to old religions. Right. And more liberal people tend to look for foreign religions. Yeah. Because it's different. The, the, the liberal people love stuff that's unfamiliar, and the conservative people love stuff that's familiar. Right. 30 that's years exactly ago, what we're in right now. Yeah. 30 years ago, everyone wanted to be a Buddhist. Then 10 years later, everyone wanted to do Kabbalah. And, you know, now, now it's, you know, who knows voodoo? I don't. I, I you know. I don't know. It's 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 sort of all the same. Looking for something else. And truth is, a lot a lot of these things are are sort of very similar to other things that already exist. And and eventually, eventually, something culturally coheres and coalesces. Uh, around the first century BC, the first century AD, you had all these mystery cults. They were doing the same thing. People in Rome were talking about Isis. They were talking about Mithras. All this stuff that they were just trying to figure out and sort out how they felt, um, you know. And the Romans, the Roman, the Romans before they burnt it down and said that they regretted it, talked about how awesome Jerusalem was, mm -hmm. and they, they they genuinely thought it was super cool that they had this ancient tradition with this great temple. Um, and the uh, they they were looking. The, the conservative Romans looked to the old stuff, and then there were liberal Romans who looked to, to foreign stuff. And then right pretty close to our time, if you think about analogizing Rome to the United States, which I, I was happy enough to teach a whole course on this. I have some of my lectures online, if anybody's curious, on my YouTube channel. So I, bet, I bet they are. And yeah, sorry? I bet they are. Oh, yeah. And the, uh, um, so the Spangler analogized this pretty pretty uh, closely and I think pretty accurately. It's not destiny, but it is, in a sense, harmony or an echo. And a few decades, on the analogy, it would be a few decades, maybe a generation and a half from now or a generation from now, the first Pantheon got built. So that's kind of analogistically in our future, the building of the first Pantheon. The Pantheon as we know it was later. The earlier pantheon was probably more of a humble Greek-style temple. And then later on, Spengler calls the pantheon the first mosque. Right. If you think about how it's shaped, it's not. It's a radical departure, the pantheon. He, he says this roundness and the dome and the light from above and the macrocosm and the microcosm. He said that was the spiritual force of what later was expressed in Islam and Orthodox Christianity and Rabbinical Judaism. All of that spiritual force was expressing itself a little bit early, which sometimes happens. Uh, and so we're approaching a time, what the Romans were doing, because they were looking around so much, is they, in order to bring, to address how people were feeling and to bring unity to the empire and all that, that Agrippa, you know, uh, Augustus's best friend who did all the work and never got any credit, in, in some sense never wanted it maybe, never wanted the risk that would come with the credit, right. uh, Agrippa founded uh, a big a big temple that was supposed to be a temple for all Roman citizens, no matter what they believed. Unitarian. Yeah. You, you know, a Unitarian. No, I, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Unitarian. Uh, and Frank Lloyd Wright, interestingly built, uh, it wasn't exactly Unitarian. It was like the unity church, which was not the same as the Unitarians, right. but they were a similar idea. Uh, so Frank designed one of those. It's in Chicago. I've been there. It's stunningly amazing. Um, but, well, you're an architect. Get get to work. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'm thinking. I'd I'd like to do that. Um, and the best way to do it is for me. That's why I'm starting to have this conversation because I want to. I don't want this to be my Corbusier fantasy temple that springs off my head like Athena from Zeus. Uh, right. the odds of that being meaningful are not good even though i could have fun with it and honestly honestly my brain does do that anyway and if i was doing that it would involve an obelisk and a giant plaza where the shadow moves fast enough because it's large enough to be read like a like a minute hand 
Well, something I mean, like that. Well, sure. the henges. I mean that. That's. I mean, going back to the tepes and all of that. I mean that. That's right. a, as old as human time. <laughs> so I think we're reorienting to that, and right. that's something that I've been thinking about. Is that this fascination with the ancient monuments is not coming out of nowhere? I mean, yes, they're awesome, but they've always been awesome. Mm-hmm. Their awesomeness has not changed. What has changed is the fact that we're attracted to that particular type of awesome. And I think it's because there is a rebirth of a yearning to understand the connection between the transcendent and the imminent, which is really what those places were all about. And I think we're somehow doing this in a new way. I think that the new, uh, uh, the new sense of temple would certainly have something to do with sound. Oh, absolutely! Um, I mean, they always do the, the the cathedrals did the Greek the Greek theaters, which were religious places, had to do with sound, but it would be in a different way now. Um, and so, yeah, so just coming up with that. So, uh, definitely, ladies and gentlemen, if you have your ideas, if you have your your thoughts, what kind what kind of religious space do you think fits your life? Well, tell I, me below. <laughs> I mean, I think that. I think that you're dancing with ideals already, and maybe it's subconscious, but I mean, you know, the mosques with the dome, I mean, domes are very, you know, you think more Eastern, you you have the Taj Mahal, yes. even the Kremlin, and I don't think it's any accident that the, that the cultures that were way ahead with astrology and astronomy, sort of almost like the observatory, so I think you definitely need a domish observatory part, the yep. obelisk as as your central point somewhere but i think you also need to have something with resonance and you need to have more the think of christianity or maybe judaism almost like a square with wedges you know with seraphim you know maybe you incorporate them all together and somehow make them harmonate and there you have your universal religion i don't know enough about buddhism or, or hinduism to shape them but uh I, I imagine the elements are all there. So this is why I need to have these conversations. You said something amazing there. You said square with wedges. What do you what do you mean by that? I'm trying to put shapes to religions. And listen, we all we all shape by our upbringing and what we are and what we aren't. But I sort of think of Christianity sort of as a square, whether it's a rectangle, a rhombus, or whatever. But sort of for for you know you you sort of have your rules, and there you are in the middle. Judaism very much the same, but it, you know, the, with the whole Talmudic and and early mysticism in there, you you sort of have your your wedges and your triangles. And I and I had an interview with a gentleman years ago, not years ago, probably a year and a half ago, where he said seraphim was mistranslated as angels. It doesn't mean that; it means wedges, um, which brought me to which made me think of like the Vinaya in in a. Uh, the Vedic and the Mahabharata. So I'm thinking that that sort of brings in the Judaism and the Indian religion, which is not Hinduism. Hinduism is a Dharmic philosophy. Um, You probably would need to get the five cardinal elements and the four cardinal points in there and something with the colors to, to get to China. But I think that you, and if you have enough, you know, I think there's enough overlap with sort of what we call indigenous uh, you know, beliefs and symbology that I, th- I think that like if you and Dan Brown got together, you could probably come up with something. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> it yeah. would be. Dan, if you're, if you're listening, I, I mean, I, I mean, just let me, you know, put my, fi- my handprints in, in the cement or something to, so that I can get my little piece of credit, but that's it. Oh, certainly. Definitely. I could make Well, if this were the middle ages, you know, what I would do is there would be side chapels all around and then there would be a side chapel, and then they would get a stained glass person to put a picture of you the way that you would like to be portrayed, like like holding an implement. Right. You would like you'd be you'd be in a stained glass with a microphone or something like. Well, I it would be Brad Pitt's face on Superman's body. I mean, I know, you know what, Henry? Just do Henry Cavill. That that's fine. That that that, that, that okay. I will settle for Henry Cavill. That that, that that's fine. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure you would come up with something much more brilliant because artists always do. Um, but that, that I, I think shapes and geometry is part of it because that's part and music and harmonics because music and geometry are the languages of the universe, not to be too trite. 
Oh, no, it's it's absolutely profound. I don't think it is trite at all. And uh, perhaps a good note to to end on would be to to remind ourselves of the great words of what the who the Germans simply called der Dichter, the poet Goethe, uh, who was fond of saying that architecture is frozen music. Oh yeah, beautiful. Which is an interesting way of seeing things. And so, ladies and gentlemen, listening, of course, if you have ideas, if you want to just even chat with me about actualizing the ideas you you have, you want to share with me ideas you have for, for sacred spaces, and even the idea, I haven't formulated this as clearly as I had in the past, and, and, I, and again, I'm just so thankful to Jeff for, for this space and for his amazing ideas here, um, and the idea that Agrippa created the original pantheon because he wanted to have a space where any Roman citizen could experience their own spiritual belief and to be welcome, that might be a nice attitude to take and see what shapes come out of that. Absolutely. So let us know. I, and thank you so much. Yeah. Any, any closing thoughts before we go? Oh my goodness. No, this is sweeping. Thank you so much. I, again, it's um, humbled and privileged to be here with you. Anybody who wants to follow my shows, Garden of Doom is sort of the one that talks about things like this. But also, listen, I'm not above UFOs and cryptids. I, I love that stuff, too. And Garden Views is more legal business tech. But, you know, if you've listened to both shows, you now have a flavor of me and it's still me. So you can find those wherever podcasts are found. Uh, I guess my preferred place would be either the PWC because I'm a one third owner of it <laughs> or, or the Wrestling Soup Network because they put me on and on their network. And really, why would they put our, you know, my shows on a wrestling network? But they did anyway. All right. Well, great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, definitely uh, check out Jeff uh, and subscribe to his podcast. Leave some good reviews uh, and give us some feedback and everything. You can like, share, and subscribe, please, to my YouTube channel. Just uh, Living Process Gets It, E-T-Z-I-N, brings that up on YouTube. If you want to reach out to me and contact me, Twitter is probably the best, at H-I-S-T-O-F-A-R-C-H. That's at Histovark on Twitter. And uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you.
castles in the air. I've got a dream. I want the world to share in castles.